Welcome to The Query Show. Uh, I want to say a special welcome to new listeners. I've been seeing a bunch more of you on my like creepy stats dashboard, which is very exciting. Um, <clears throat> also, if my voice sounds a little rough, I have a cold, but that will not stop me from recording a new episode. Um, so most, if not all of you may have seen that the poet Mary Oliver died this week, which is a really deep loss because she's a beautiful poet. And if you aren't familiar with her work, I suggest you pick up one of her collections. Uh, she really wrote primarily about nature, and she had this like straightforward but really gorgeous style that kind of makes you just want to leap over your back fence and take a long walk through the trees. She was like making you see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, which is actually William Blake. But what I love most about her work was that it was just so generous towards the experience of being human. Even when she was writing about grasshoppers or geese or do on grass, there was this undercurrent of compassion for people and the lives that we live. There was a reverence for our struggles, uh, no matter how universal or mundane. And there was hope, like just plain hope, which I think is really nice, just plain hope. Now, as a writer, I am myself a very anxious person, like the picture book Wemberly Worried could be my biography. And after the news of Mary Oliver's death, my friend Tina tagged me in an illustration of one of Mary Oliver's poems that I found very relevant and comforting, sort of like this solid wall against my back. So I figured maybe you, my fellow creatives, uh, my fellow overactive imaginers and fellow worriers might like to hear this one. So I'm going to read you a little poem. I Worried by Mary Oliver. I worried a lot. Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it, and I am, well, hopeless. Is my eyesight fading, or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia? Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing, and gave it up and took my old body and went out into the morning and sang. Goodness, in every sense of the word, I just love that poem. I feel like it's really relevant, especially to those of us who are working on work and feel like we'll never see the end of the tunnel. So let's take heart and read some query letters. So the first one today comes from Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, now, what I'll do is just read the entire query letter, and then I'll go paragraph by paragraph. Dear Agent, when Claudia married Jonah Foster, former teen heartthrob and lead singer of Foster Brothers, she knew his fans would be jealous. But she never imagined that years later, a disturbed admirer of Jonah's would attempt to murder her and inadvertently land him in the hospital instead. In the aftermath of the attack, Jonah quits Foster Brothers, upending the lives that he, his brothers Clint and Sam, and the rest of the Foster family have built around their band. As Jonah, Claudia, and their three children adjust to a more conventional way of life in their hometown of Nashville, Claudia cautiously seizes the opportunity to pursue the passion for photography she abandoned upon starting a family with a touring musician. But just as she's beginning to carve out an identity beyond Jonah Foster's wife, Jonah blindsides her with an impulse decision to run for mayor, with the election only a few months away. As Jonah launches into his campaign, 
Claudia must learn to balance her newfound independence and fledgling career with the pressure to return to her old role as Jonah's supportive wife and quiet, faithful sidekick. Life After Foster is a 70,000-word commercial-slash-women's fiction novel aimed at adult enthusiasts of YA. Alternating between Claudia's present-day adult life and flashbacks to the pivotal moments in her relationship with Jonah, the plot combines elements of inspired by a true story tale such as The Royal We, Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan's whimsical romance based on the love story between Prince William and Kate Middleton, American Wife, Curtis Sittenfeld's poignant fictionalized portrait of Laura and George W. Bush's marriage, and Grace and the Fever, Zan Romanoff's One Direction-inspired tribute to boy band fandom. The book also explores the world of music fandom, celebrating the beauty of connection and community while exposing the dark underbelly of constant feverish adoration. I'm a lifelong music fan and have published music-related articles in various publications. I wrote Life After Foster on nights and weekends away from my day job as a business writer for PR and communications agencies. What began as unpublished fan fiction based on observations from within the Hanson fan community grew into a bigger story about a group of original characters, the devoted following that both sustains and threatens their very existence, and what happens after the music stops. Per your submission guidelines, please find the first 10 pages of the manuscript appended below. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Best, author. Okay, so let's go paragraph by paragraph. So in the first paragraph, we meet Claudia and Jonah, the former teen heartthrob. Uh, I already really dig the premise of this because fake bands are super fun to read about. And this query opens with great cause and effect language. We have when Claudia did X, she knew Y, but she never imagined Z. This immediately shows us not only the facts and details of the story, but how they exert action on each other and create more action, aka plot. So nicely done. Plus, we get the introduction to key characters all by name in a way that's straightforward and easy to understand. I would like to know just a teeny bit more about Claudia. What does she do? What does she care about? Spoiler alert, the next paragraph gets into this, as you might remember, but I want it now. Just a one or two word phrase before her name, for example, aspiring photographer Claudia could help lend her more definition here. And while this whole paragraph is well phrased and comprehensible, I'm still not sure exactly where the story opens. Does it start with a scene at their wedding, with the attack, with Jonah quitting the band? It's all important information presented logically, but it still doesn't quite home in on the inciting incident as much as I want it to for maximum clarity. Now we get to paragraph two, where she starts to forge an identity beyond Jonah Foster's wife, only to have Jonah run for mayor. So this is where I really knew I would love this book, because full disclosure, I am married to a mayor myself, and I fully feel the struggle of trying to have your own identity. Although my husband was never a pop superstar, he did play trombone in the high school marching band, but not really the same thing. So this paragraph too, just great with the cause and effect language. I can see that there's a plot happening here. We can see that one action, Jonah launching his campaign, forges another action, Claudia's reconfiguring her life. The shape of the story feels just story-shaped. It's consistent, it has internal logic, but it also isn't predictable. It ends up with Claudia literally in the balance and with no clear way forward, which is tantalizing. One extremely small nitpick, though, all of these sentences use as X, then Y type structures to show cause and effect. Not that there's anything wrong with as, I almost didn't notice at all. And I don't know that an agent reading would notice either. It's not at all a deal breaker but the author could experiment with other phrasings here. And one final thing that is just on this side of missing, stakes. Why is independence so important to Claudia and to Claudia in particular? 
In other words, why is her character the best or possibly worst person for this particular sticky situation? Why is it going to push her emotional buttons in a way that it wouldn't for someone else? There are plenty of women who don't mind giving up some of their independence for their husbands, and as a feminist, I fully support their making that choice, even though it's not one I would make for myself. So, in order to really feel the electricity of Claudia's emotional inner conflict, we need to know what personal ramifications losing her autonomy has for her. Now we get to the summary paragraph with the comp titles, the word count, all that good stuff. It's a great summary paragraph. These comp titles feel exactly right to me. They all speak to different aspects of the novel and all have slightly different tones and approaches. That creates a kind of mental Venn diagram where life after Foster is in the center. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't advocate for as long a description of the genre as commercial slash women's fiction novel aimed at adult enthusiasts of YA. But in this case, I think it works. The author could probably lop off commercial if they were looking for ways to shorten, since I think women's fiction kind of implies commercial. And for what it's worth, the term women's fiction is a whole nuanced conversation I don't have time to get into right now, but it is used well here. I might lead off with the note about the structure. The alternating timelines and flashbacks seem pretty key to the execution of this project, and knowing that earlier might quell concerns about the inciting incidents. So the author might start this paragraph with something like, told from Claudia's present-day perspective interspersed with flashbacks to their early relationship, life after Foster is dot dot dot. But again, it's not a deal-breaker, I think it's still clear, and probably once the agent reads the sample pages it'll all fall into place. Now we have the bio paragraph talking about being a lifelong music fan, being in the fan community, and their writing history. I like this closing paragraph in bio a lot. It might be unconventional to mention that a novel is based on fan fiction. In fact, I think it is probably pretty unconventional, but here it works because this novel is also about fandom itself. Mentioning that shows that the author has a real understanding of this subculture and knows where fans are coming from. It's a subculture where authenticity matters. Also, what happens after the music stops is a nicely pithy line. I can see that going on the flap copy for the book. Actually, that whole last line makes nice use of the rule of threes. The rule of threes being just using three similarly phrased items in a sentence to make a point. Like, I came, I saw, I conquered. It's also called tricolon if you want to be fancy. It gives things a nice rhythm and is a welcome addition to copywriting or querying. It's just a little spice. So there you have it. Life After Foster, the story of a woman married to a mayor, which I personally find very appealing. Thank you, Kelly. Our second query today comes from Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. So again, I'll read the full query and then go paragraph by paragraph. So this opens with the agent name and mailing address, which I won't read, obviously. Dear Agent, Haley Whitaker has two goals for her summer in Washington, D.C. Spend time with her half-brother Jake before his time stateside ends and complete her internship at the Library of Congress. At first, it seems like she has her entire life worked out, or at least her summer. However, that all changes when she meets one of Jake's co-workers, Connor. The connection between Haley and Connor seems undeniable to them, but one thing stands in their way. Jake cannot stand the idea of the two of them dating, all because of a little white lie Connor told Jake years ago. Despite their hurdles, Jake's disapproval, Haley's return to school, Connor's inevitable deployment, Connor and Haley pursue a relationship. Jake refuses to speak with either of them. Yet things do not go the way they planned. 
Distance and pressure build between the two of them, the tension with Jake acting as the brunt of it, and just before Connor deploys, he ends the relationship, crushing Haley. She seeks comfort in the arms of another man, but cannot get Connor out of her head. When things go south with him, Haley finds herself alone. All of this leaves Haley with just her goal of finishing her senior year of college, until the last person she ever expected to see again shows up at her door one day. Connor returned early from deployment because of an injury. And thanks to his connections, he knows where Jake is. The two of them set out to find Jake and make amends, and discover Jake carried on with his life quite well in their months apart. He got married, and he and his wife are expecting a child. Reconciliation may seem forced at this point, but all parties set the record straight and agree to work things out. After graduation, Haley goes on to graduate school, and my novel closes with her graduating with her whole family in attendance and Connor later proposing. Always Faithful is a 51,812-word new adult novel completed as a National Novel Writing Month challenge. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, author. Okay, so the paragraph breakdown. So, like I said, we start with the agent name and mailing address. This is kind of a meta note, but it's not necessary to include the date or the mailing address in an email query. That's just a holdover from snail mail business letters when people sent queries in envelopes, so you can go ahead and chop it out. It's just wasted space. So now we meet Haley Whitaker and her goals for her summer in Washington, D.C. Which, goals! I love it. It's a very clear way to start out paragraph one. We know what Haley's about, where she is, and a bit about the other characters. However, there are some places where the author can be more specific. How old is Haley, for starters? And why is Jake not going to be stateside for much longer? Then there's the bigger question of the why. Why the Library of Congress? Why is it important for her to have her life worked out? These whys are all tied to the emotional and inner arc of Haley's story. We know where she's starting out physically and professionally, but where is she starting emotionally? Where might she have room to grow through the events of the story? Now, the author can drop hints with things as simple as a few adjectives, for example, shy, bookish Haley Whitaker. Then we get the sense that this will be a story about coming out of her shell. Getting her life planned out might be important to her because she's a rule follower and doesn't know how else to live. Or, on the opposite end of the spectrum, rebellious, rule-breaking Haley Whitaker. That implies that this will be a story about her learning to follow rules, at least sometimes. Getting her life planned out in this case would be important because she's trying to prove she's changed. In short, showing a character's initial emotional state is a way to intimate stakes. Emotions are that electric current that energize a reader to care. So now we have Haley and Connor's budding romance and Jake's objections. It's got drama, intrigue, siblings. Things are starting to ramp up. Now this paragraph has a few phrases that could be smoothed out. Seems undeniable to them is a bit clunky. We're talking about romance here, so the language should have some real spark to it. Similarly, pursue a relationship feels a bit clinical for forbidden love. Even something as simple as fall deeper and deeper in love gives a bit more oomph. Then we have the word stand repeated twice in one sentence, although with different meanings. The author just needs to find a synonym. But more to the point, cannot stand doesn't feel quite strong enough to pose Jake as an obstacle to their love. What about something like absolutely forbids or refuses to accept? Next, there are a few other details that could be sharpened up. What's the little white lie, for example? I'm dying to know. And when it comes to their hurdles, what other things are standing in their way? Or is hurdles just setting off the examples that follow? In that case, I think that part of the phrase can be axed, and the examples can just speak for themselves. Finally, we have Jake not speaking to either of them, which is clearly a big deal. 
but the author could make the cause and effect clearer here. The sentence just stands alone. So I'd suggest something like, until Jake cuts contact with them completely. Having a stronger sense of Haley's emotional situation would also make this sentence feel more consequential. If we knew that reconnecting with Jake meant something particularly special to her in terms of her emotional growth, we'd feel the devastation of his going no contact. Now we have Haley and Connor getting estranged and her finding comfort in the arms of another man. Which, you know, the best laid plans, right? So the big issue I see in this paragraph is impersonal language. Things like, things do not go the way they planned, distance and pressure build, and things go south. These are all phrases without any human actors in them. Remember, the plot should be driven by choices the characters make. And these kinds of sentences veil the actual actions of the people in the plot. So how and why are the questions for this paragraph? How does distance and pressure build? And what exactly does it mean that Jake is the brunt of it? That phrase confused me a little. How do things go south? Why do Haley, Connor, and potentially even the other man do what they do? Now we have the summary paragraph where we find out how things wrap up. Now by contrast, this paragraph has the characters taking lots of action and generally being the engines of change, so nice work. However, I think it goes a little too far into the end of the plot. Generally, a query letter should cut off its plot summary with the character's fate in the balance, with the protagonist left on the precipice of the decision that will either push her to change or stay complacent in her old ways. In this case, it's hard to see what choice Haley makes. The action is mostly spurred by Connor and his return into her life. So perhaps the author could cut out the reconciliation plot points and rephrase the beginning. This is a great place to use, but when X, the protagonist must Y or Z. For example, but when Connor shows back up in Haley's life, she must choose between reuniting with her lover or finally achieving her dream of finishing college. And again, emotional stakes matter here. It's great that Haley's goals are so clear. It makes everything easy to understand from a mechanical point of view. But we also need to know more about Haley and why her goals matter to her in order to get fully invested in her story. Finally, there's the phrase, my novel ends with, which needs to get cut out. For one thing, like I said, a query shouldn't fully give away the ending of the book, but for another, the plot summary should be written from a distant point of view and shouldn't use the first person. That means not writing from the I of either the characters or the author. Think of it like the flap copy on a published book. Now we have the closing paragraph with the genre and word count. So we've got word count, title, and category, which is excellent. I would round the word count to the nearest 1,000 words. It just looks cleaner and more professional. Also, while it's really interesting to know that this book was a NaNoWriMo project, I don't know enough about this author. What is their writing background? Even just a super short, I live and write in X city, Y state gives us a teeny bit of insight. Even newbie writers can and should have a little bio to close out their queries. And if you check the Patreon, I have a bonus episode with specific ideas for how to nail this part of your query, even if you're new. Then the sign off, very polite. So thanks so much, Hannah, for sharing this query. the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening and bearing with my kind of gravelly voice. As always, it has been a pleasure. Thank you again to Kelly and Hannah for being brave and sending in your query. 
If you, listening writer, would like to be on The Query Show, I would love to have you. Just go to thequeryshow.com and fill out the submission form. You can upload your query right there, and I'll queue it up for the show. I've been getting a lot of great queries, which is fantastic. I'm particularly looking for queries in speculative fiction, so sci-fi and fantasy. I like to pair things sort of genre-wise, so if you have any of those, please do send. Also at thequeryshow.com, you can check out more episodes and join our mailing list to get a free querying workbook that I wrote. You can also check out written copies of all the critiques, which you can access by becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. I want to say a special thank you to new patrons, Debbie, Melissa, and Kelly. Welcome to Query Show Nation. It's great to have you. There's a lot of fantastic things in store for the Patreon. I'm creating a half-hour query in class that you can download as a video and watch, a couple more bonus episodes, I have some great agent guests lined up, and the patrons make that possible, and it's just a great community of writers to have at your back. So you can find a link to that on the website as well. Finally, if you like the show, please tell your friends and get them to send in their queries and just help us make the show even better. So with that, I send you into the week. Good luck, good querying, and may you all get many requests and multi-book deals. (laughs) 